Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. If you've ever wondered what's changed about youth that there are so many young people questioning their gender identity, then you're going to want to listen in to this next podcast episode. Dr. Vinny Chulani is an award-winning adolescent medicine and children's gender support doctor. He is an associate professor of pediatrics in the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona, and his research interests have really included adolescent sexual and reproductive health, health equity promotion, and the care of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and questioning youth. Dr. Chilani's contribution to promoting access to care and health equity for underserved adolescents has been recognized through many awards, and you're going to hear why when you listen to our dialogue. So I can't wait for you to learn more and really how to widen your embrace to more and more different kinds of people. Dr. Vinny Chilani. I'm really excited to have you here today. And I always, whenever I start these, I feel like I want to shower you with gratitude because I feel really appreciative of you giving us our time. So everyone, let me introduce you to Dr. Vinny Chalani. And he was an introduction from our um, lovely city leader, Adeline Driscoll in um, Arizona. Dr. Chalani is the section chief of adolescent medicine at Phoenix Children's Hospital and the medical director of Phoenix Children's Gender Support Services. Um, he's got a pretty big pedigree. He's also the associate professor of pediatrics in the Department of Child Health. Um, he completed his residency at uh, Mimonis Medical Center in Brooklyn, yes. New York. Um, but what I'm really excited about is to hear about your contribution to the promoting of access to care and health equity for medically underserved adolescents, including LGBTQ youth. Um, you've gotten so many awards um, for this work. And so thank you for being here. I think that our listeners, um, for me, I'll say as a listener, the transgender, LGBTQ, and non-binary populations are the folks that we see the most on the sidewalk. We have a lot of folks from these groups come sit down and talk with us. And sometimes I can feel a little like a Midwestern housewife that doesn't have a lot of, you know, my background. I don't have a lot of exposure. And so this is an opportunity for us to all learn how to show up in an integrity and skill with people who are really different than we are, right? So thank you for being here. Um, what I wanted to find out first is to get to know you a little bit. Like aside from the pedigree, how did you get started with this particular specialty? Can you kind of give us some background on you and your history and how this all began for you? Absolutely. For such a pleasure to to join you, by the way, and be be a part of the work that you do. I 
I truly feel that we are extensions, that we are partners, and we all care about people, and we all value human connection and that human spark, and, and, and that, that really is so central to my philosophy of care. So thank you so much for, for, for inviting me. So, you know, my background is I am a pediatrician by training, but during my years of pediatric residency, I fell in love with teenagers. And, you know, in pediatrics, it's easy to love little babies, right? But, yeah. but teenagers, not so much. And we've created narratives of storm and stress, of teenagers as difficult, of teenagers as resistant. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go root for the underdog. And for me, my philosophy has always been about rooting for the underdog. So I went and pursued additional training in adolescent medicine, which is a specialty of pediatrics. And in fact, there are only about 600 specialists in, in the U.S., for example, where we have 42 million teenagers. Wow. So we definitely are a very niche group of individuals. And we, we recognize the unique developmental tasks of the teenage years, that these are the years when young people develop their ego identities, their vocational identities, their moral identities, their sexual identities. These are the years where they individuate. And I think it's really critical for us to understand that the process and outcomes of, of adolescent development are the result of the interactions between adolescent hosts and their environment. Mm. It's the result of the interactions between adolescents and the supports, the structures, and the systems that surround them. And I truly feel that it's our responsibility as adults to secure for our young people the best possible environments for them to thrive and for them to achieve the best possible outcomes for, for, for this mm -hmm. population. Yeah. So when I was working in Children's Hospital in Los Angeles as a fellow was when I first got involved in homeless health care. And you know, when you work with homeless populations, you will work with LGBT populations. Yeah. Up to 40% of homeless populations identify as LGBT mm -hmm. and you know that. There are many contributors to this, family rejection, unstable supports, discrimination in housing, discrimination in employment. Mm -hmm. And you know, Tracy, I worked with so many young people on the streets and I heard stories of trauma and stress and disconnectedness and lacking supports. And since then, I've really come to advocate for this population. And I, right now here at Phoenix Children's Hospital, I run our LGBT service programs. I run our transgender service program where we follow a large number of families. I welcome patients of all ages according to where they are in their journey. I work with three and four and five-year-old patients that are gender diverse. I work with young people that are 11 and 12 that are struggling with the changes that puberty brings. I work with older patients. And it is such a fortune to be a part of the gender journeys, to be part of the sexual journeys of our patients and families. And Tracy, I truly feel that if we can build the kinds of supports when young people first present with their questions about gender and sexuality, if we can create the right affirmative environments, we can promote positive outcomes for young people. And so, in my work here, I not only have a clinic here at Phoenix Children's Hospital, but it's based at the hospital, but we're also very dedicated to caring for marginalized populations. So I provide the same breadth of service to young people that may be experiencing homelessness. Do we partner with shelters and transitional living programs? We work with parent support groups. We work with schools. We work with school boards. And we really also try to try to insert ourselves in policy because 
one-on-one -on -one work is wonderful and meaningful, but there can also be tremendous impact to be had when we impact the kinds of systems that really impact our children and that impact our young people. And so right now in my practice, I have, I have the good fortune of pediatricians or family practitioners sending patients to me only because they came out as LGBT or they identified a concern. And, and, and it's, it's, it's so great to be able to meet with young people and to be able to meet their families. And I, I work in a very unique setting because I get to really spend a lot of time with my families as a specialist. My new patient visits are an hour, which is probably rare in medicine. What it allows me to do though, Tracy, it allows me to go beyond what you personally called intentional listening and not just listening for the purpose of gathering information that's necessary to medical decision-making, but to truly get to know young people, to get mm -hmm. to know where they are in their journeys, to get to know where their families are, and to create a culture and to create an environment where they can be just who they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess you've said a few things that are, are so um, informative for me. I, loved, I, I just have to replete this phrase that you said because it's so beautiful. You said a gender and, and sexual journey, creating these affirming gender and sexual journeys for, or creating environments that create gender and sexual journeys for kids. I just, I think that's amazing. I, I think where I'd like to get your expertise is when we're sitting out on the street and you have somebody who has never met somebody who is from the trans population or who might identi not identify along any gender lines. Yeah. The first question that came up in our listener circle recently is, what's this thing about pronouns? Like, how are you even supposed to address that? And what if I screw up and say he when I should have said she, or should have said they rather than he or she? Yeah. And so how does one navigate that when you're new to this and you really genuinely don't want to hurt people or be unskillful? What's, what's the skillful way to sort of even address pronouns? Let's start there. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the, the beautiful thing about transgender lives and experiences coming to the forefront is it's really compelled us to, 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 to reflect on our shortages, our limitations in our, in our understanding of language and how we communicate. And the good thing about that is it allows us to be more intentional and more reflective and to listen to ourselves as we use language. You know, pronouns matter because they are truly in day-to-day -day conversation, the way we honor, um, reflect, and, and, and affirm um, another person's gender, right? But I think it's also important to, to, to sort of recognize that neither do we want language police. We don't, want, we don't need pronouns, we don't need pronoun police. And I think it really has to begin with, with the right intention. There has to be the intention to honor and do right by, by the other, to, to honor and do right by the people that we listen to. And there are ways for us to communicate that in, in, in practice, right? So I, I get this question a lot when I do trainings for pediatricians and folks in the community. Yeah, how, how do I approach this? How do I do this? The one thing that I would probably encourage folks to do is test that different language. You know, every language is very individual. Language is personal. My lexicon, my vocabulary might be very different from you or from your style or from another person's style. One of the things I do, for example, when I walk into a patient room and I see a new patient, is I introduce myself. I say, I'm Dr. Chulani. My pronouns are he, uh, my pronouns are he, him, and his. 
And I think what that really creates is a space for the young person to recognize that regardless of, of identity, be they cisgender or, 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 or transgender, that this is a safe space and this is a person that is knowledgeable in, in that, that at least wants to do the right thing by me. And I think more and more we see it, right, in email signatures, by pronouns or, or she, hers. And so I think that's one way for people to, to sort of break the, the, the subject of, of, of pronouns. The other thing that I also really communicate with patients, because we recognize that gender identity is not binary, right? It's not just she and him. It's not just male and female. And we recognize that gender identity exists on a spectrum. I have young people who identify as non-binary or gender non-conforming. My young people teach me because, you know, language is evolving, right? Language is important, yeah. but, it's, but it's never static. And so I learn as I go along. And sometimes patients will use words like dummy boys and dummy girls. And I, I ask them to teach me, you know, can you tell me what that means? And so I think sometimes for listeners too, when they're stumped, know that there's also the opportunity to learn from the people that we listen to and that there's an opportunity to keep up and, 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 and learn from young people and learn from the patients that we, that we work with. So the one thing I always bring up, Tracy, is um, they, them, you know, how we have patients that use they, them pronouns. Sometimes when I, when I go into a room and, and the patient says, my pronouns are they, them, I immediately acknowledge that you know what, I definitely want to honor your pronouns. But in my mind, sometimes I have difficulty with singular and plural. And I think of them sometimes as plural. And if I ever misspeak, know that it's not out of intention. Know that it's because of wiring. Mm -hmm. right? And I think it's, it's important to be able to communicate that genuine, authentic intent to do right by people. Mm -hmm. So yesterday, Tracy, I was actually at a visit with, with I, I love families, I love patients, and every visit, no two stories are alike. And I had this mother in the room with her 17-year-old male-identified child. And I noticed that this mother would infrequently go back to using female pronouns. And so I looked at the mom and, 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 and we talked about, where is this coming from? Is this reflective of, of where you are in your level of support? Or is that just 17 years of wiring? And mom says, you know, you are so right. That's about 17 years of wiring. In fact, when I, when I was in therapy, when my child was in therapy yesterday, the therapist described it to my child. What if tomorrow I ask you to start calling your mom dad? How would that work for you? <laughs> right? right? And so I, I think it really begins with recognizing, I think the fact that we're asking these questions about how to best address pronouns is great because it allows us to be more, more, more mindful, more reflective of it and communicate that you want to do the right thing and learn as you go along. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. So what are some of the unique pieces that I, I, maybe you've experienced that would be helpful for our listeners to know about the lives of people that are non-gender conforming, that they want to have heard or, or would offer some skill to us as listeners, right? Yeah. You, you know, you're getting me on a topic that I can talk endlessly about. <laughs> Feel very passionately about. So you know, there. According to the most recent um, Williams Institute um, Gallup poll survey, about one point there are about one point six million Americans that identify as transgender. 
And we know that their numbers are increasing and they're becoming increasingly visible in society. And although there has been increasing visibility, there are truly so many gains still that we need to make as far as the community is concerned. I think we have to recognize that in Western cultures and in Western philosophy, there is such a thing as binarism, right? In binarism, we, we, think, of, we think of things as binary, of good and bad, of fat and thin, of, of short and tall. And you know, in binarism, binarism is not neutral. In binarism, there is a favored bull and there is a disfavored bull. There is a preferred bull and a not preferred bull and power flows accordingly. And, and, and you have to recognize that the transgender individuals, if you were to consider transgender as an umbrella of term that describes individuals whose experience of gender, whose psychological experience does not match their parts, they, they certainly are in the minority. They certainly are non-dominant in, in terms of their standing in society. Mm. And along with that comes stigma, right? right. Stigma, stigma is an undesired differentness. And, and, and stigma can exist on many different levels. Stigma can be institutionalized. What do we call it? What is institutionalized stigma? It is a disadvantage that becomes embedded in our structures, in our systems, that then becomes part of normative practice. When you take a look at our laws around employment, when you take a look at schools, when you take a look at the experiences of transgender people in community, there's certainly a layer of, of institutional stigma. Hmm. Stigma is something that is also personally enacted. In one-on-one -on -one interactions, we convey prejudice, we convey, we convey stereotypes into sometimes episodes of discrimination. Now, stigma can also be internalized. It's when members of stigmatized groups or marginalized groups take in messages about themselves, negative messages about their intrinsic worth. You know, I always talk to young people about their experience of stigma and their self-concept because it is immensely critical for young people to feel good about themselves and to feel positively about themselves. So, you know, I, I met this 19-year-old transgender female at my, at my clinic for, for, for at the shelter one day. And I always ask them, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you see for yourself in the future? And she said, you know, I want to be a school teacher. And I go, so how optimistic are you that you'll be able to achieve your dreams? She goes, not really. Mm. Because which parent would really trust their child with a transgender school teacher? Mm. That really is reflective of, 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 in, of internalized stigma. And the one message that I will convey to, 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 to our listeners is that you know, as you work with as you work with this population, know that sometimes their their the their experiences in society, their experiences with prior interactions, and their experiences with themselves can actually interfere with the development of a healthy, positive self concept and with the development of supports that we know are necessary for them to thrive. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, I'll tell you a story. I interviewed a city leader once, not from, not from actually the United States, from another, another country. And one of the things they'd said, knowing that I'm from San Francisco, um, they, they, they wanted to know, am I going to have to listen to people who are non-cisgendered? And I said, well, yes. <laughs> what is this fear about? What is this fear about coming into contact with people that don't identify along these binary continuums, do you think? You know, I think the, the roots of fear, I think, vary by, by, by individuals. You know, by, by nature, I think we fear what we don't know. 
by nature, we fear what we are most uncomfortable with. When it comes to healthcare professionals, for example, like working with healthcare professionals, we tend to fear what we feel we're weakest at, what we feel less competent at. So I think some of the fear that you're seeing might be grounded in lack of familiarity and just lack of comfort, and which can be bridged through support and education. But I think we also have to recognize that, that when it comes to stigma, binarism, power, right? Sometimes fear is actually how we perpetuate that system and structure of power that keeps transgender people and people that are on the fringes, people that lie outside the lines of how society say it should be and what's dominant, that sometimes this fear or instilling fear or creating fear can be a way to perpetuate oppression. It can be a way to, to perpetuate that power structure. Well, holy crap. Fear, I'm going to repeat this, fear can perpetuate the power structures that actually keep the stigma alive and keep marginalizing folks. So what I'm hearing you say, if I were to turn that around, is that having the courage to lean in to the discomfort of somebody who's different than you and to listen to them actually is already a step in the direction of equalization. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things I would really encourage folks to do is sometimes when, when, when the motivation, when the, when the reason behind fear is discomfort, what do we do when we're uncomfortable? Sometimes it shows in our tone, it shows in our body language, that the pressure begins to build up. You know what I do? I speak of the feeling. I speak of the feeling. I say, you know, if I seem uncomfortable, if I seem, you know, no, it's because that that this is an area that I may not be very exposed to or need to, but I want to do right by you. But I, I want to learn and I, to, to speak of the feeling so that the tension doesn't mount and the client or, or the person that's, listen, that's being listened to doesn't necessarily sort of begin to feed off this body language, to, to, to diffuse it by speaking of it. That is so beautiful. I'm going to have to say that again because I want everybody that's watching this and for our future volunteers who are going to take this as part of the training that we give to our listeners. Did you hear what Dr. Chulani just said? What he just said is out your discomfort. Yes. You don't need to worry about your, your ego. Just say, gosh, I, I, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable and I don't want you to feel like it's a reflection on my intention to really show up with you. It's just because this is new to me. And then if I just name it, then you don't have to take care of me, but then I don't have to act it out. Yes, and then it can go to the parking lot. And it can go to the parking lot. My discomfort <laughs> can go to the parking lot. I think that is one piece that some folks fear is if I name my discomfort that I'm somehow asking you to take care of my discomfort. So do you have any tips on how to also communicate our discomfort in a way that sort of says, and I don't need you to take care of it. I just want to liberate us from my discomfort. We're, I'm just, this is a liberation <laughs> conversation for everybody here. You know, that's exactly how I would say it. And again, yeah. everyone's language is personal and individual. Okay. And I think the task for listeners is to test out what language works for them, right? Okay. There, there's not one language template. There's language that we're each familiar with. And I think part of it is developing the tools and the language and the scripts. Scripts are very important. Scripts yeah. allow us to ease into settings because we feel that we've mastered the tools and the language to develop the scripts to allow us to out discomfort, to allow us to, to, to explore 
you know, when we meet with people to communicate that, no, we don't assume heterosexuality or cisgender identities. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really hearing you make an invitation for practicing, practicing how to talk about our discomfort in a skillful way, because coming to it with more practice actually does less burdening of the person that you're listening to with your stuff. If you practice ahead of time, you're like doing your part. Is that, is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? I think you definitely captured it. Oh, good. Good. Well, I'm taking up a, a bit of your time. I could just, you're just delicious to talk to because you have so much good stuff. I want to ask you something that I know is on the minds of a lot of the parents that are volunteers. And I know for me, I have sons that are in that age range where they're beginning to really think about sexuality one more than, than others. And I think one is sort of already uh, probably pretty non-conforming. Um, what's what do we know about the rise? It seems to me, and maybe it's because of where I live. I live in a, a pretty liberal city, but there seem to be more and more kids that feel expressive of a non-binary expression of gender and sexuality. And is that on the rise or was it always there and people just didn't feel free enough to talk about it? Do you have a sense of that or research or? So I think there are a number of sources of information that we can go to for that, some of which are the youth risk behavior surveys, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, there's, there, there, there's, some, there's some data, there's some anecdotal. I think what we're seeing is, is the concept of non-binary experiences coming to the forefront. And, you know, Tracy, in my work with young people, I asked them, so tell me a little bit about your gender story. Tell me about your gender journey. And a very common theme is that young people oftentimes do not have the language, do not have the vocabulary, they don't, they don't have the concept to describe their experience. And only when they, when they come across the concept do they say, wait a minute, mm. that accurately re- reflects my experience, that, that describes my experience, and then they come to identify as. And I think as we develop, as, we, as, as these new terms and concepts emerge, we allow young people to truly reflect and identify the diversity of human experience that we have lo- that we have been lacking and that we continue to evolve in. Mm. Yeah. And some of what we're seeing as well are what might have been late life transitions, folks that would not maybe have encountered the concept until much later in life, until after they've settled in families and have had children, and now they're they're coming into the concept much mm. earlier and coming into this awareness much earlier. Ah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. I mean, I even think about some movie. What was the, there was a, a great movie out recently that was kind of for teens and it was a young boy coming out in high school as, as gay and his first crush. And, and this would have never been something that would have come out in yeah. my generation, right? And so my sons have this very, they've just watched a gay love story and they feel all the same tender feelings that I would feel about any love story. And they're feeling them. And, and to them, it's, it, there's no difference in their mind. Like, oh, that's such a sweet lady. Oh, and he loves his friend. And oh, and he's not telling the truth. And oh, they want to kiss. And they, it, it, you think that it would be a problem for kids from some, they completely, it's easy for them and they completely get it, but we don't expose them to it. So yes. then they're, they're burdened with not having models for their own emotional expressions and, and what they're feeling. And yeah, yeah. So I, I hear that as one of the potential um, promoters of, of, of kids being able to find identifiers for how to describe their experience. And so then they're able to sort of language and come out earlier than ever before. Is that Absolutely. Right? 
Yeah, and you know, Tracy, each generation creates for itself its own language to describe their experience. Mm. I'd say that the word groovy did not exist before my parents' generation. Right. Did you just use the word groovy? Yes. <laughs> okay. I know that your teens that you work with now do not use the word groovy. So please, can we just talk about teens for a second? What are the, <laughs> what are the cool slang words right now? So groovy was maybe yours. Rad and hip were mine. Well, now there's dope. <laughs> dope, dope. That's, that's dope. Okay. What else? <laughs> uh, I, I run short right now. But okay. <laughs> There's plenty. I learn along the way. <laughs> and I'm not going to use anybody else's cool slang because, God forbid, can you imagine like an old person like me trying to be all cool using the slang of this generation? They'd look at me and go, girl, you are trying too hard. Yeah. <laughs> so I ask every interview that I do the same question. If there were one wish that you had for us as listeners out there on the street in terms of our impact on this population... And then if the, you, there were one wish for Sidewalk Talk as a whole, what would those two wishes be? One wish for the population and one wish for Sidewalk Talk. So my, my wish for the population is to have an equal shot at, at life, at opportunity, at health, at happiness, as any other person. Mm. To, to be considered and to be afforded no less for being. Mm. No, no less, no less for being transgender, no less for being LGBT, but you really appeal to fundamental human principles of justice, equity, and respect for all humanity. And my, my, my wish for, for sidewalk talkers, my, my, my wish for sidewalk talks is to be able to reflect, to be able to reflect that, that commitment to diversity, to inclusivity, to respect, to human connection, in, in, in effective communication, in, in, in empathetic communication as you do your work with this population. Mm. Well, we're starting right now by having you teach us so much. So Dr. Chilani, thank you for your, the gift of your time because I know that you're busy with so many people. I'm very, very touched that you yeah. took the time with us. So Tracy, may I, may I just share some parting words? Yes, please. Would that be okay? Yes. So, and I feel very strongly about this because when you take a look at the literature on LGBT populations and transgender populations, it's always framed in hardship, rejection, difficulties, disparities, bad outcomes. Mm. And I think it's important for us to recognize that while there are risks and challenges, there, there's also resilience. There's right. resilience. And there are tremendous examples of transgender people and LGBT people that have achieved, that have succeeded, that are doing well. And as, as we work with young people and as we work with LGBT populations and transgender populations, may we not always, while we're mindful of the risks, may we not approach them from, an, from, from, from a sense of deficit, of, of social deficit, of emotional deficit, of physical deficit, but to trust that they are doing well. To, to trust that given the supports, given the, given the necessary internal and external supports, they can be successful and they can thrive. Yeah. I think that's a great reminder. And I think that's one of the key tenets of Sidewalk Talk is that compassion happens between equals so that when we sit on the sidewalk, we're not there to help anyone and we're looking for what's whole about somebody to connect to their wholeness, not to what's wrong with somebody. 
But I appreciate that reminder because this is the stigma that our brains are kind of wired around, right? And you're wanting to say, hey, Tracy, you're probably going to have this stigma. You're probably going to have these assumptions. So just check them when you're out there, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Get back to your day. And My pleasure. Thank you. Yes. All right. Dr. <laughs> Vinny Chulani, you can check him out. Do you have a website? It's actually at the Phoenix Children's Hospital website. So go to the Phoenix Children's Hospital website. I'll put some links after this thing, you know, is up on Facebook. All, all perfect. And you did fabulous. He Ooh. asked, Dr. Chalani asked me earlier, are we going to be able to edit anything if I mess anything up? Said, no, 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 darling, it's live. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank okay. You. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.